Chapter Four of The Ordeal of Mark Twain by Van Wyck Brooks. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by John Greenman. Chapter Four, In the Crucible. The American proposes to realize his individuality freely and fully, but so long as he is master of his person and free to choose, he considers himself satisfied willingly consenting that some other person better qualified or more competent should choose in his place from the instant when he can do what he will he easily wills what he is asked to will gustav rodriguez the people of action recollect now the mood in which mark twain went west to the gold fields of nevada the mood of a regular fellow was it not one that exposed him in a peculiar sense to the contagion of the gilded age for weeks after he reached carson city he played about in the woods too full of the enjoyment of camp life to build the fence about a timber claim which he and a comrade had located he was out for a good time oblivious of everything else and with all the unconsciousness of a child a moralist would have said that the devil had already marked him out for destruction recollect now on the river mark twain had impressed his confreres of the wheel the pilots regarded him as a great reader a student of history travels literature and the sciences a young man whom it was an education as well as an entertainment to know now in nevada says mr paine his hearers generally regarded him as an easy-going indolent good fellow with a love of humor with talent perhaps uh, but as one not likely ever to set the world afire does not that suggest a certain disintegration of the spirit we infer this in any case from the sudden change in his personal appearance always a sort of barometric symptom in mark twain's life lately a river sovereign and dandy in fancy percales and patent leathers in white duck and striped shirts he had become the roughest of rough-clad miners in rusty slouch hat flannel shirts coarse trousers sloping half in and half out of the heavy cowskin boots merely you imagine the natural change in dress that any gold-seeker would have made no he went even further than others and became a sort of paragon of disarray an unmistakable surrender of the pride and consciousness of his individuality and whoever doubts the significance of this may well compare the tone of his utterances as a pilot with such characteristic notes of his nevada life as this if i were not naturally a lazy idle good-for-nothing vagabond i could make journalism pay me twenty thousand dollars a year but i don't suppose i shall ever be any account the reversion to that earlier frame of mind in short had not made this man who was approaching thirty a boy again it made him behave like a boy it made him half the time feel like a boy but it revealed in him nevertheless the indisputable signs of a certain dereliction from some path of development his nature had commanded him to follow the artist in him had lost its guiding line he was broken down again just as he had been after his father's death his spirit had become plastic once more he was ready in a word to take the stamp of his new environment now whatever was true of america during the gilded age was doubly true of nevada where as mr paine says all human beings regardless of previous affiliations and convictions were flung into the common fusing pot and recast into the general mold of pioneer life in the gold fields was in fact an infinite intensification of pioneering it was a sort of furnace in which all the elements of human nature were transmuted into a single white flame an incandescence of the passion of avarice if we are to accept mark twain's description in roughing it of the flush times in virginia city we can see that the spirit of the artist had about as good a chance of survival and development there 
as a butterfly in a blazing chimney. Virginia had grown to be the livest town, for its age and population, that America had ever produced. The sidewalks swarmed with people. The streets themselves were just as crowded with quartz wagons, freight teams, and other vehicles. Joy sat on every countenance, and there was a glad, almost fierce, intensity in every eye that told of the money-getting schemes that were seething in every brain, and the high hope that held sway in every heart. Money was as plenty as dust. There were military companies, fire companies, brass bands, banks, hotels, theaters, hurdy-gurdy houses, wide-open gambling palaces, political powwows, civic processions, street fights, murders, inquests, riots, a whiskey mill every fifteen steps, a dozen breweries, and half a dozen jails and station-houses in full operation, and some talk of building a church. The flush times were in magnificent flower. The great Comstock load stretched its opulent length straight through the town from north to south, and every mine on it was in diligent process of development. This was the spirit of Mark Twain's new environment, a spirit inflexibly opposed, as we can see, to the development of individuality. Had Mark Twain been free, it might have been a matter of indifference to him. He might have gone his own way and amused himself with the astonishing spectacle of the gold fields, and then taken himself off again. But Mark Twain was not free. He was, on the contrary, bound in such a way that, far from being able to stand aloof from his environment, he had to make terms with it. For what obligations had he not incurred? To become such a conventional citizen as his father would have approved of, to make money and restore the fallen fortunes of his family. That old pledge was fixed in the back of his mind, where it had been confirmed by his failure to discover and assert any independent principles of his own. Furthermore, he now had his own financial record to live up to. It was the lucrativeness and prestige of the pilot's career that had originally enabled him to adopt it, and we know what pride he had had in his great triumph in being a somebody at last. His brother Orion had considered it a disgrace to descend to the trade of printing. They were gentlemen's sons, these Clemenses. He had had, in short, a chance to exercise and educate his creative instinct while at the same time doing what was expected of him. And now, when he had lost his guiding line, more was expected of him than ever. His salary at twenty-three on the river had been $250 a month, a vastly greater income certainly than his father had ever earned. At once, and of course, we are told, he had become, owing to this fact, the head of the Clemens family. His brother Orion was then ten years older, says Mr. Paine, but he had not the gift of success. By common consent the young brother assumed permanently the position of family counselor and financier. These circumstances, I say, compelled Mark Twain to make terms with public opinion. He could not fall too far behind the financial pace his piloting life had set for him. He was bound to recover the prestige that had been his, and to shine once more as a conspicuous and important personage. He had to make good again, quickly and spectacularly. That was a duty which had also become a craving. How strongly he felt it we can see from one of his Nevada letters in which he declares earnestly that he will never look upon his mother's face again, or his sister's, or get married, or revisit the banner state, until he is a rich man. What chance was there now for the artist in Mark Twain to find himself? 
a unique opportunity had led him for four years into the channel of inner development through a special vocation but it was only the indispensability of the pilot to the mississippi river folk that had obliged them to give him such lordly freedom no special vocation was indispensable in nevada consequently no special vocation was tolerated there the pioneer law of which mr crowley speaks held absolute sway the man who persisted in one job interfered with the rough good fellowship which naturally arises among a group of men who submit good-naturedly and uncritically to current standards his higher standards and peculiar ways constituted an implied criticism upon the easy methods of his neighbors and he himself impaired the consistency of feeling upon which the pioneers rightly placed such a high value even if mark twain had been fully aware of the demands of his creative instinct therefore and he was anything but fully aware of them he could not have fulfilled them now and at the same time fulfilled his craving for wealth and prestige accordingly he was obliged to acquiesce in the repression of his individuality his frank freedom of sentiment his love of reading his constant desire for privacy all those qualities that revealed his natural creative instinct were from the point of view of his comrades just so many pretensions precisely in so far as they were different or superior they had to be taken down the frequency and the force of these manifestations and the tenacity with which up to a certain point he persisted in indulging in them made him as we know a general butt many and cruel to use his own word were the tricks his comrades played on him knowing his highly organized nervous system they devised the most complicated methods of torturing him there was the incident of the false meerschaum pipe which cut him to the quick this man who had been betrayed into uttering words of heartfelt gratitude there were the diabolical monkey tricks of steve gillist who with his fiendish tendency to mischief was always finding means to prevent him from reading there was the famous hold-up on the divide on the night of his lecture mark didn't see it our way said one of the perpetrators of this last practical joke he was mad clear through in short every revelation of his individuality was mercilessly ridiculed and mark twain was reminded a dozen times a day that his natural instincts and desires and tendencies were incompatible with pioneer life and fatal to the chances of any man who was pledged to succeed in it that is why though he always retaliated at first he always yielded in the end meanwhile with his creative instinct repressed his acquisitive instinct the race instinct that rose as the personal instinct fell was stimulated to the highest degree money was so easy in nevada that one could hardly think of anything else i met three friends one afternoon he says in roughing it who said they had been buying overman stock at auction at eight dollars a foot one said if i would come up to his office he would give me fifteen feet another said he would add fifteen the third said he would do the same but i was going after an inquest and could not stop a few weeks afterward they sold all their overmen at six hundred dollars a foot and generously came around to tell me about it and also to urge me to accept of the next forty-five feet of it that people tried to force on me these are actual facts and i could make the list a long one and still confine myself strictly to the truth many a time friends gave me as much as twenty-five feet of stock that was selling at twenty-five dollars a foot and they thought no more of it than they would of offering a guest a cigar these were flush times indeed 
In short, in order to stand in with pioneer society, it was not enough to repress everything in you that made you different. You had to form extravagant habits, you had to treat money like water, and you had to make it. Mark Twain was not merely obliged to check his creative instinct, he was obliged to do his level best to become a millionaire. It is a significant fact, under these circumstances, that Mark Twain failed as a miner. He had good luck, now and then, enough to make wealth a tantalizing possibility. He describes, though we are told with exaggeration, how he was once a millionaire for ten days. But he failed as a miner precisely because he was unable to bring to his new work any of those qualities that had made him so successful as a pilot. Concentration, perseverance, above all, judgment, these were the qualities that former career had given birth to. The craftsman's life had instantly matured him. The life of sheer exploitation, in spite of his sense of duty, in spite of the incentives of his environment, in spite of the prospects of wealth and prestige it offered him, could not fuse his spirit at all. It only made him frantic and lax by turns. He went off prospecting, and with what result? One week of this satisfied me, he said. I resigned. Then he flung himself into quartz mining. The letters which went from the Aurora miner to Orion, we are told, are humanly documentary. They are likely to be staccato in their movement. They show nervous haste in their composition, eagerness, and suppressed excitement. They are not always coherent. They are seldom humorous, except in a savage way. They are often profane. They are likely to be violent. Even the handwriting has a terse look. The flourish of youth has gone out of it. Altogether they reveal the tense anxiety of the gambling mania. Then the pendulum swings to the other extreme. He is utterly disgusted and has but one wish, to give up everything and go away. If Sam had got that pocket, said one of his comrades of his last exploit, he would have remained a pocket miner to the end of his days. But he would have got it if he had been able to bring to the situation any of the qualities he would have brought to a critical situation on the Mississippi. It is quite plain that he failed simply because he did not care enough about money, merely as money, to succeed. His real self, the artist, in short, could not develop, and yet, repressed as it was, it prevented him from becoming wholeheartedly anything else. We shall see this exhibited throughout the whole of Mark Twain's business life. So, here was Mark Twain face to face with a dilemma. His unconscious desire was to be an artist, but this implied an assertion of individuality that was a sin in the eyes of his mother and a shame in the eyes of society. On the other hand, society and his mother wanted him to be a businessman, and for this he could not summon up the necessary powers in himself. The eternal dilemma of every American writer. It was the dilemma which, as we shall see in the end, Mark Twain solved by becoming a humorist. Only a few hints of the dumb conflict that was passing in Mark Twain's soul rise to the surface of Mr. Paine's pages. We are told scarcely more than that he was extremely moody. He was the life of the camp, one of his comrades recalled, but sometimes there would come a reaction, and he would hardly speak for a day or two. Constantly we find him going off alone into the wilderness to find his balance and to get away entirely from humankind. There were other times when he talked little or not at all, but sat in one corner and wrote, wholly oblivious of his surroundings. Wrote letters, his companions thought, for they would hardly have left him in peace had they imagined he was writing anything else. All this time, plainly, his creative instinct was endeavoring to establish itself, with what mixed motives, however, we can see from the fact that he signed his first printed pieces with the pen-name Josh. He did not care to sign his own name, says Mr. Paine. 
He was a miner who was soon to be a magnate. He had no desire to be known as a camp scribbler. How much meaning there is in that sentence! All the contempt and hostility of the pioneers for literature, all Mark Twain's fear of public opinion, all the force of his own counter-impulse to succeed on pioneer terms, to stand in with society, to suppress in himself a desire that was so unpopular. We can see these mixed motives in the strange, realistic bravado with which he said to a man who wanted to start a literary magazine in Virginia City, You would succeed if anyone could, but start a flower garden on the desert of Sahara, set up hoisting works on Mount Vesuvius for mining sulfur, start a literary paper in Virginia, hell! Nevertheless, there was in Virginia City a paper with some literary pretensions called The Enterprise, which was edited and written by a group of men famous all over the West for their wit and talent. It was to the Enterprise that Mark Twain had been sending his writings, and at last he was offered a position on the staff. This position he presently accepted. It is significant, however, that he did so with profound reluctance. Assuming as we are obliged to assume that Mark Twain was a born writer, it is natural to suppose that he would have welcomed any opportunity to exchange his uncongenial and futile life as a miner for a life of literary activity and associations. He would naturally have gravitated towards such people as the Enterprise Group. That he did so is proved by his constantly courting them as a contributor. But committing himself by accepting their offer of a position was quite a different matter, in spite of the fact that they, as happy-go-lucky journalists, were in perfectly good standing with the rest of the pioneers. Everybody had money. Everybody wanted to laugh and have a good time, says Mr. Paine. The Enterprise, Comstock to the backbone, did what it could to help things along. Certainly Mark Twain could not have thought he would be losing caste by connecting himself with an institution like that. There, in short, was his chance at last, as one might suppose. And how did he receive it? In roughing it, says Mr. Paine, we are led to believe that the author regarded this as a gift from heaven and accepted it straightway. As a matter of fact, he fasted and prayed a good while over the call. And it was only when the money situation had become truly desperate and he had lost all hope of making his way as a miner that he accepted it. Before binding himself he set off at midnight, alone and on foot, for a seventy-mile walk through uninhabited country. He had gone into the wilderness, says Mr. Paine, to fight his battle alone, and we are told that he came out again eight days later, with his mind still undecided. How different that all is from the mood in which he had entered upon his piloting career! There had been no hesitation then. He had walked forward with clear eye and sure foot, like a man registering an inevitable choice of his whole soul. Now he has to battle with himself, and the step he finally takes has, to my sense, the strangest air of a capitulation. He walked all the way from Aurora to Virginia City, a hundred and thirty miles, drifting into the Enterprise office, worn and travel-stained, we are told, on a hot, dusty August day. My starboard leg seems to be unshipped, he announced at the door. I'd like about one hundred yards of line, I think I am falling to pieces. Then he added, My name is Clemens, and I've come to write for the paper. It was, says Mr. Paine, the master of the world's widest estate come to claim his kingdom. Am I mistaken, however, in feeling that there is something painful in that scene, something shamefaced, something that suggests not an acclamation, but a surrender? 
mr paine indeed perceives that in joining the staff of the enterprise mark twain was in some way transgressing his own desire he attributes this however to another motive than the one that seems to me dominant clemens he says displayed no desperate eagerness to break into literature even under those urgent conditions it meant the surrender of all hope in the mines the confession of another failure no doubt mark twain's masculine pride revolted against that he had more or less committed himself to mining he was turning his back besides on the line of activity his mother and his companions approved of he was relinquishing the possibility of some sudden dazzling stroke of fortune that might have brought his freedom once for all in short there were plenty of reasons dictated by his acquisitive instinct for making him reluctant to surrender the mining career in which he had proved himself so inept but although his acquisitive instinct had been stimulated to excess in his heart of hearts he was not a money-maker but an artist and the artist in him would naturally as i say have acclaimed this opportunity in order to understand his reluctance therefore we must consider not only the hopes he was giving up with his mining career but the character of that opportunity also somehow in this new call the creative instinct in mark twain not only failed to recognize its own but actually foresaw some element of danger what briefly did the enterprise mean for him he had been sending in his compositions he had been trying his hand experimenting we know in different styles and only his humor took he had written at last a burlesque report of a fourth of july oration which opened with the words i was sired by the great american eagle and fouled by a continental dam and it was this that had won the editor's heart and prompted him to offer clemens the position that said he is the sort of thing we want mark twain knew this he knew that although the policy of the enterprise was one of absolutely free speech he would be expected to cultivate that one vein alone and that his own craving for wealth and prestige the obligation to make money which would become all the more pressing if he relinquished the direct acquisitive path of the mining life would prevent him from crossing the editor's will or from cultivating any other vein than that which promised him the greatest popularity for him therefore the opportunity of the enterprise meant an obligation to become virtually a professional humorist and this alone had he wished to become a humorist we are now in a position to see he would not have displayed such reluctance in joining the enterprise and the fact that he displayed this reluctance shows us that in becoming a humorist he felt that in some way he was selling rather than fulfilling his own soul why this was so we cannot consider at present the time has not yet come to discuss the psychogenesis and the significance of mark twain's humor but that it was so we have ample evidence mr cable tells how to his amazement once when he and clemens were giving a public reading together the latter whom he had supposed happy and satisfied with his triumphant success turned to him on their way back to the hotel and said with a groan oh cable i am demeaning myself i am allowing myself to be a mere buffoon it's ghastly i can't endure it any longer and all the next day mr cable says he sedulously applied himself in spite of the immense applause that had greeted him to choosing selections for his next reading which would be justified not only as humor but as literature and art this is only one of many instances of mark twain's lifelong revolt against a role which he apparently felt had been thrust upon him it is enough to corroborate all our intuitions regarding the reluctance with which he accepted it but there is plenty of other evidence to corroborate these intuitions mr paine tells us that henceforth in his letters home the writer rarely speaks of his work at all and is more inclined to tell of the mining shares he has accumulated that there is 
no mention of his new title, the pen name he had adopted, and its success. He knew that his severe Calvinistic mother could hardly sympathize with his scribblings, worthy or unworthy, that she was much more concerned about the money he was making. He who had sworn never to come home again until he was a rich man was ashamed in his mother's eyes to have adopted a career that promised him success indeed, but a success incomparable with that of the mining magnate he had set out to be. Still, that success immediately proved to be considerable, and if he had felt any essential pride in his new work, he would certainly have said something about it. What we actually find him writing is this. I cannot overcome my repugnance to telling what I am doing, or what I expect to do, or propose to do that he had no essential pride in this work, that it was not personal, that he did not think of it as a true expression of himself, but rather as a commodity, we can see from the motives with which he chose his pen-name. His letters, copied and quoted all along the coast, were unsigned, says Mr. Paine. They were easily identified with one another, but not with a personality. He realized that to build a reputation it was necessary to fasten it to an individuality, a name. He gave the matter a good deal of thought. He did not consider the use of his own name. The nom de plume was the fashion of the time. He wanted something brief, crisp, definite, unforgettable. He tried over a good many combinations in his mind, but none seemed convincing, etc., etc., in short, he wanted a trademark in order to sell what he instinctively regarded as his merchandise. And the fact that the pen name was the fashion of the time, in pioneer circles especially, observe, simply argues that all the other writers in the West were in a similar case. The pen name was a form of protective coloration for men who could not risk in their own persons the odium of the literary life and it is an interesting coincidence that Mark Twain, in the pilot's vocabulary, implied safe water. We shall see later how very significant this coincidence was in Mark Twain's life. What we observe now is that he instinctively thought of his writing as something external to himself, as something of which he was proud only because it paid. It is quite plain, then, that far from having found himself again, as he had once found himself on the Mississippi, Mark Twain had now gone astray. He had his ups and downs. His success, however prodigious, was intermittent. But whether he was up or whether he was down, he was desperately ill at ease within. His letters and memoranda show all the evidence of a bad conscience. Hear him in San Francisco. We have been here only four months, yet we have changed our lodgings five times. We are very comfortably fixed where we are now, and have no fault to find with the rooms or the people. But I need change, and must move again. Whatever else that incessant senseless movement may mean, it is certainly not the sign of a man whose work absorbs him, whose nature is crystallizing along its proper lines. Home again, he notes in his journal, after those weeks of respite in the Sandwich Islands. No, not home again, in prison again, and all the wild sense of freedom gone. The city seems so cramped and so dreary with toil and care and business anxiety god help me i wish i were at sea again work writing had become in his eyes identical with toil clemens once declared he had been so blue at this period says mr paine that one morning he put a loaded pistol to his head but found he lacked courage to pull the trigger and observe, finally, when he writes to his mother from New York, as he is about to start on the Quaker City excursion, which is to result in The Innocents Abroad and his great fame. 
there are two letters written within the same week of june eighteen sixty seven the eagerness of his youth does not suffice to explain their agitation in the first he says i am wild with impatience to move 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 curse the endless delays they always kill me they make me neglect every duty and then i have a conscience that tears me like a wild beast i wish i never had to stop anywhere a month the second is even more specific i am so worthless that it seems to me i never do anything or accomplish anything that lingers in my mind as a pleasant memory my mind is stored full of unworthy conduct toward orion and toward you all and an accusing conscience gives me peace only in excitement and restless moving from place to place you observe that under a cheerful exterior i have got a spirit that is angry with me and gives me freely its contempt the reason he assigns for this frame of mind is wholly unacceptable far from being guilty of unworthy conduct toward his family there is every evidence that he had been as he remained the most loyal and bountiful of sons and guardians under a cheerful exterior i have got a spirit that is angry with me and gives me freely its contempt could he say more plainly that he has committed himself to a course of action which has in some quite definite way transgressed his principle of growth one further final proof in eighteen sixty five the jumping frog was published in new york where according to one of the california correspondents it was voted the best thing of the day how did clemens who was still in the west receive the news of his success the telegraph says mr paine did not carry such news in those days and it took a good while for the echo of his victory to travel to the coast when at last a lagging word of it did arrive it would seem to have brought disappointment rather than exaltation to the author even artemus ward's opinion of the story had not increased mark twain's regard for it as literature that it had struck the popular note meant as he believed failure for his more highly regarded work in a letter written january twentieth eighteen sixty six he says these things for himself i do not know what to write my life is so uneventful i wish i was back there piloting up and down the river again verily all is vanity and little worth save piloting to think that after writing many an article a man might be excused for thinking tolerably good those new york people should single out a villainous backwoods sketch to compliment me on jim smiley and his jumping frog a squib which would never have been written but to please artemus ward he had thought so little of that story indeed that he had not even offered it to the californian the magazine to which he was a staff contributor he did not says mr paine regard it highly as literary material we can see in that letter the bitter prompting of his creative instinct in rebellion against the course he has drifted into we can see how his acquisitive instinct on the other hand forbids him to gainsay the success he has achieved i am in for it he writes to his brother i must go on chasing phantoms until i marry then i am done with literature and all other bosh that is literature wherewith to please the general public i shall write to please myself then marriage he says to himself is going to liberate him this poor ingenuous being 
this divided soul who has never been able to find any other criterion than that of an environment which knows no criterion but success his destiny meanwhile has passed out of his own hands that is the significance of the victory of the jumping frog as mr paine says with terrible unconscious irony the stone rejected by the builder was made the cornerstone of his literary edifice so much for mark twain's motives in becoming a humorist he had adopted this role unwillingly as a compromise at the expense of his artistic self-respect because it afforded the only available means of satisfying that other instinct which in the unconsciousness of his creative instinct had become dominant in him the gregarious acquisitive instinct of the success-loving pioneer and what a corroboration that instinct now received was ever a choice more thrillingly ratified by public opinion limelight and the center of the stage says mr paine was a passion of sam clemens boyhood a love of the spectacular that never wholly died like tom sawyer he loved the glare and trappings of leadership the permanent dream of his childhood indeed had been to become something gorgeous and active where his word his nod even constituted sufficient law here we see exhibited what alfred adler calls the masculine protest the desire to be more than manly in order to escape the feeling of insecurity for mark twain who was a weak child could never have survived in the rough-and-tumble of hannibal life if he had not exerted his imagination and prevailed over his companions by means other than physical this dream had been fulfilled in his piloting career which was at once autocratic and spectacular united now a deep craving to shine with his other desire to make money to please his family to make good in pioneer terms it received a confirmation so prodigious that the despised rejected repressed inarticulate poet in mark twain was immediately struck dumb and his doubts and chagrins and disappointments were lulled to rest already in nevada mark twain had been pointed out as one of the sights of the territory his sayings were everywhere repeated on the streets tom sawyer was walking the stage and reveling in his power crashes of applause greeted his platform sallies the comstock ready to laugh says mr paine found delight in his expression and discovered a vast humor in his most earnest statements the opera houses of the mining towns wherever he went were packed at two dollars a seat his improved dress and increased prosperity commanded additional respect he had acquired in short a new and lucrative profession at a bound and before he went east and owing to the success of the jumping frog those about him were inclined to regard him in some degree at least as a national literary figure and to pay tribute accordingly when he set out on the voyage of the quaker city he found himself billed as an attraction with general sherman and henry ward beecher but this was only a faint promise of the glory that was to follow the publication of the innocents abroad it was his second book his profits were three hundred thousand dollars and it brought him into instant and intimate contact with the most distinguished people in america besides this it brought him the recognition of the atlantic monthly it brought him offers of political preferment a diplomatic position the postmastership of san francisco with a salary of ten thousand dollars a year a choice of five influential offices in california anything he might be disposed to accept they want to send me abroad as a consul or a minister he writes from washington judges pledge the president's appointment senators guarantee the confirmation of the senate it brought him presently a tremendous reception from the brains of london assembled at the annual dinner of the sheriffs of london 
mine being between you and me he writes to his publisher a name which was received with a flattering outburst of spontaneous applause when the long list of guests was called it brought him an offer from at least one magazine of six thousand dollars cash for twelve articles of any length and on any subject it brought him lecture engagements that paid him one thousand six hundred dollars in gold for a single evening and so popular were these lectures that when one night in pittsburgh he played against fanny kemble the favorite actress of the period miss kemble had an audience of two hundred against nearly ten times the number who gathered to hear mark twain could this divided soul who had rebelled against the career into which he was drifting question a verdict like that almost from the outset his filial conscience had been appeased of his first lecture tour in nevada and california we are told that it paid him well he could go home now without shame but even the promptings of his artistic conscience were now parried and laid at rest he had grown more lenient in his opinion of the merits of the frog story itself since it had made friends in high places especially since james russell lowell had pronounced it the finest piece of humorous writing yet produced in america thus whatever doubts mark twain might still have harbored regarding the vital propriety of his new career were opportunely overlaid by the very persons he could not fail to respect the most it was this last fact without doubt that sealed his destiny james russell lowell and the brains of london there was little criticism in their careless judgments but how was mark twain to know that he was a humorist they accepted him as a humorist they had no means of knowing that he was intended to be something else that he really wished to be something else they found him funny and he was just as funny as they found him but to mark twain their praise meant more than that it meant something like a solemn sanction of his career from the world of culture certainly says mr paine of one of his first triumphal visits to london certainly he was never one to give himself airs but to have the world's great literary centre paying court to him who only ten years before had been penniless and unknown and who once had been a barefoot tom sawyer in hannibal was quite startling innocent barefoot boy as if the true forces of criticism ever operated in the presence of a visiting foreigner mark twain had not seen englishmen applaud when joaquin miller at a london dinner-table thrust half a dozen cigars into his mouth at once and exclaimed that's the way we do it in the states he didn't know how much the tribute was a tribute to his oddity his mere picturesqueness he didn't know that he was being gulled and partly because he wasn't because the beautiful force of his natural personality would have commanded attention anywhere because also the brains of london the brains of gildall banquets are not too discriminating when it comes to laughter and tears with slow music or books like the innocents abroad but mark twain's was not the mind to note these subtle shades what he saw was that he was being heartily slapped on the back in no too obviously patronizing way by the people who really knew whose judgment could really be trusted yet england as a matter of fact so far as he was concerned was simply countersigning the verdict of america for if observe mark twain's first counselors at home had been plain men of business with an eye single to returns in cash he might have seen a light and made a stand against the career of self-exploitation into which he was drifting it would not have been easy from the moment when the jumping frog had set all new york in a roar business agents and other brokers in fame and bullion had begun to swarm about this popular young man like ravenous gulls in the wake of a ship but the counsels of some of the most famous and revered men in america played into the hands of these agents 
and surrendered Mark Twain over to them. Anson Burlingame, Henry Ward Beecher, even Artemus Ward, these must have been great names to the Nevada miner of the sixties. One was a diplomat, one a clergyman, one a writer. Their national prestige was not based upon money. To Mark Twain they could not have seemed anything less than masters, in some degree, of the life of the spirit, and all their influence corroborated the choice Mark Twain had already made. It was during the flush times in Virginia City that he had met Artemus Ward, who, on the pinnacle of his career, was, for all that little Nevada world, the very symbol of the literary life itself. Clemens, we are told, measured himself by this man who had achieved fame, and perhaps with good reason concluded that Ward's estimate was correct, that he too could win fame and honor once he got a start we can see what Ward's counsel had been. He had accepted Mark Twain, not as a creative spirit with possibilities of inner growth before him, what could Artemus Ward have known about such things, but as an embryonic institution, so to speak, as a going concern, a man who had already capitalized himself and wanted only a few practical hints. Concretely he told him that he ought to extend his audience eastward. Burlingham's advice was subtler, but it came to much the same thing. You have great ability, said he. I believe you have genius. What you need now is the refinement of association. Seek companionship among men of superior intellect and character. Refine yourself and your work. Never affiliate with inferiors. Always climb. If Dostoevsky and Dickens and Victor Hugo had been constrained to accept such advice in their youth, where should we look now for Crime and Punishment and Bleak House and Les Miserables? We cannot blame Artemus Ward and Anson Burlingame for knowing nothing about the creative life and its processes, and how can we blame the poor, ignorant, unawakened poet in Mark Twain for notwithstanding the prestige of men who more than any others he had known, had won their spurs in the field of the spirit. Even if it had not already been too late, there were probably not ten souls in all America capable of so divining the spirit of this lovable child as to have said to him, You are right in wishing to repudiate that line of least resistance. Put money and fame, superiors and inferiors, out of your mind. Break your ties now, and, instead of climbing, descend into life and into yourself. Mark Twain had followed Ward's injunction and extended his audience eastward by going east himself. He never forgot, we are told, that advice of Anson Burlingame. Indeed, he acted upon it immediately by associating himself with the choice and refined party of the Quaker City excursion, which led him to the feet of his future wife. But it led him first to the feet of Henry Ward Beecher, the most celebrated spiritual leader in all America. What bread and wine did Beecher offer to the unworldly poet in him? Now here, said he, Mark Twain reports the interview in one of his letters, now here you are one of the talented men of the age. Nobody is going to deny that, but in matters of business I don't suppose you know more than enough to come in when it rains. I'll tell you what to do and how to do it. And thereupon this priest of the ideal sat him down and showed him how to make a contract for the innocents abroad in which his percentage was a fifth more than the most opulent publishing house in the country had ever paid any author except Horace Greeley. Such were the lessons in self-help this innocent soul received from the wise men of statecraft, literature, and divinity. Thus Mark Twain was inducted into the Gilded Age, launched, in defiance of that instinct which only for a few years was to allow him inner peace, 
upon the vast welter of a society blind like himself like him committed to the pursuit of worldly success that in becoming a humorist he had relinquished his independence as a creative spirit we can see from his general attitude toward his career he had lapsed for good and all into a state of what is called moral infantility we know that the role of laugh-maker had from early adolescence come as people say natural to him at sixteen in hannibal when he told the story of jim wolfe and the cats his hearers laughed immoderately says mr paine and the story-teller was proud and happy in his success at twenty at a printer's banquet in keokuk where he made his first after-dinner speech his humor delighted his audience and raised him many points in the public regard after that he found he was always the center of attention when he spoke in public it is significant however that from all his triumphs he had returned faithfully to his work as a printer just as later he had held so passionately to the guiding line of his trade as a pilot that persistent adherence of his in a society given over to exploitation to a metier in which he could exercise the instinct of workmanship of craftsmanship is the outstanding fact of mark twain's adolescence it was the earnest of the artist in him his humor was the line of least resistance when he adopted humor as a profession therefore he was falling back upon a line he had previously rejected and this implied that he had ceased to be the master of his own destiny in short the artist in him having failed to take the helm he had become a journalist and his career was now at the mercy of circumstance glance forward a little after the triumph of the innocents abroad he wrote to his publisher i have other propositions for a book but have doubted the propriety of interfering with good newspaper engagements except my way as an author could be demonstrated to be plain before me to which mr paine adds specifically in spite of the immense success of his book a success the like of which had scarcely been known in america mark twain held himself to be not a literary man but a journalist he had no plans for another book as a newspaper owner and editor he expected with his marriage to settle down and devote the rest of his life to journalism hardly the frame of mind of the writer with a living sense of his vocation and this expressed an attitude that mark twain never outgrew here mr paine again at the time of clemens fiftieth year when his vital powers seemed to have been at their highest point as mark twain in the earlier days of his marriage had temporarily put aside authorship to join in a newspaper venture so now again literature had dropped into the background had become an avocation while financial interests prevailed financial interests there were whole years during which he thought of hardly anything else this conception of his literary career as interchangeable so to say with his financial career is borne out by his thoroughly journalistic attitude toward his work thus we find him at the outset proposing to follow up his success with a story of the hornet disaster with a series of articles on the sandwich islands and then to take advantage of the popularity of the hawaiian letters and deliver a lecture on the same subject while he was writing roughing it he planned a book of adventures in the diamond mines of south africa and so impersonal was this work that he proposed that the material for it should be gathered by an agent whom he actually dispatched then says mr paine the success of roughing it naturally made him cast about for other autobiographical material years later after the failure of the page machine in which he had invested all his money we find him returning to literature and counting up his assets exactly as if his literary life were indeed a business enterprise 
I confined myself to the boy life out on the Mississippi, he writes, because that had a particular charm for me, and not because I was not familiar with other phases of life. And then he enumerates all the various roles he has played, concluding that as the most valuable capital or culture or education usable in the building of novels is personal experience, I ought to be well equipped for that trade. It does not concern him that under all these different costumes of the miner, the prospector, the reporter, the publisher, he has been the same man, that he has really experienced not life, but only modes of living. The costumes are all different, and each one is good for a new performance. It is not the artist, but the salesman that speaks here, the salesman with an infallible finger for the public pulse. No more lectures in churches, he tells his agent Redpath. People are afraid to laugh in a church. And again to his publishing manager regarding Puddinhead Wilson, there was nothing new in that story, the American claimant, but the fingerprints in this one is virgin ground absolutely fresh and mighty curious and interesting to everybody. Mark Twain, who prophesied a sale of 300,000 sets of General Grant's memoirs, and then proceeded to sell almost exactly that number, knew very well what the public wanted. That had become his chief study. Habitually, in connection with what he was planning to do, he used the word possibilities, the possibilities of this, the possibilities of that, in the commercial, not in the artistic sense. He appears always to have been occupied with the promise of profit and reputation, a theme contained for him, never with its elements of artistic interest and value. That authorship was to him, in fact, not an art, but a trade, and only the chief trade of a series that he had followed, in true pioneer fashion. That he thought of it not as a means of free individual expression, but as something naturally conditioned by the laws of supply and demand, all the evidence of his life goes to show. I have quoted his eulogy of the old Mississippi pilot and his description of the writer, by contrast, as a manacled servant of the public. We write frankly and fearlessly, he adds naively, but then we modify before we print. One might imagine that such a thing as an artist had never existed. Am I anticipating? Go back now, go back to 1867, to the moment of Mark Twain's Cooper Union lecture, when he finds himself, in the hands of his agent Fuller, advertised to play against Speaker Colfax at Irving Hall, Ristori, and also the double troop of Japanese jugglers. Mark Twain hesitates. Fuller is obdurate. What we want this time, he says, is reputation anyway. Money is secondary. So he floods the house with complimentary tickets to the school teachers of the city. Mark, he says, after the lecture is over, Mark, it's all right. The fortune didn't come, but it will. The fame has arrived. With this lecture and your book just out, you are going to be the most talked-of man in the country. It was true. But in that moment, that typical moment, in that reluctance, in that acquiescence, in that corroboration, Mark Twain's die had been cast. Who is this apparition we see hobnobbing with generals and senators and other humbugs? The Mark Twain who is going to walk the boards of the Gilded Age. In the hour of his triumph he writes to his mother, You observe that under a cheerful exterior I have got a spirit that is angry with me and gives me freely its contempt. It is a formidable spirit, that alter ego within him. He is going to hear its bitter promptings later on. Now, however, his triumph drowns its voice. 
his private personal and domestic interests have wholly supplanted the dim and wavering sense of his vocation clemens was chiefly concerned over two things says mr paine he wished to make money and he wished to secure a government appointment for orion mark twain often spoke of the rigidity of determinism of the inexorable sequence of cause and effect as mr paine says with an emphasis of his own he had but to review his own life for justification of his belief from this point on his career was a steady process of what is called adaptation to environment he had abdicated that spiritual independence without which the creative life is impossible he was to lose himself now to quote whitman's phrase in countless masses of adjustments end of chapter four in the crucible read by john greenman